So exciting news. Four Songs Podcast is now sponsored by The Pug, a bar on H Street, Northeast Washington, D.C. And you can find them on Twitter at, at ThePugDC. And now for this episode of Four Songs. So I've made no secret that my favorite band of all time is The Clash, the 70s and 80s punk rock band from London. The second I heard them, I was hooked. I can't quite figure out how I got introduced to them because they had broken up a couple years before I bought their albums. But man, the music, the words just knocked me out. Even though I couldn't quite understand all the lyrics because I was a 12-year-old kid when I started listening to them, I knew they were trying to say something. I knew they were trying to say something that mattered even though I didn't quite understand it at the time. But the more I listened, the more I dug into it, the more I realized what they were trying to do. It was quite ambitious. They were trying to change the world. It truly wanted to make the world a better place for everybody. And from then on, music for me always had to mean something. It always had to have a stand. And you may have already figured out that this episode of Four Songs is a little different than the others. My guest this week is not a songwriter. He's not a musician. His name is Mark Anderson. He runs a nonprofit in Washington, D.C. called We Are Family. But he's also co-written a fascinating book about the clash called We Are the Clash. He and his co-author, Rolf Habutsky, detailed an oft-forgotten and oft-overlooked period of the band, which is a recording of their last album called Cut the Crap. It's a political history, it's a musical history, and it's breathtaking in its scope and its ambition. For those who know about the band, you know pretty much how it ended, or how you think it ended, when Joe Strummer, who wrote most of the words and sang most of the songs, kicked out Mick Jones, who wrote nearly all the music, because Joe and his bandmates, Paul Simonon, who played bass, and the manager, Bernard Rhodes, felt that Mick wanted to be too much of a rock star. Of course, being a rock star in a punk band is pretty much the worst thing you can possibly do. And it's probably not quite accurate, but that's how they felt. The band replaced Mick Jones with two new guitar players, Nick Shepard and Vince White. Joe, Paul, and Bernie wanted to bring the Clash back to basics. They wanted to recapture that spirit from the mid-70s. But is that, is that possible? At that point, the Clash is one of the biggest bands in the world. They were playing in front of hundreds of thousands of people. Can you really bring that back? Well, they tried. But as we all know, it didn't quite work out that way. The album that they recorded, Cut the Crap, is been universally reviled. It's been rejected. You don't hear it at all on any of the Clash's greatest hits albums or the official histories or the biographies of the band. They pretty much have expunged this period. And that's too bad, because when you listen to Cut the Crap, when you kind of get through the, peel back the layers of it, there's some tremendous music on there. And some of the lyrics on there from Strummer, they're just the best he's ever done. So Mark's book is a fresh new take on the band, and it goes into painstaking detail just how much went right and went wrong with this era. And even more so, this book is also a political history, because you can't talk about a band like The Clash without analyzing what was going on politically at the time. Remember, this is the age of Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. As a backdrop for this book, there's a critical moment in time where Margaret Thatcher took on one of the biggest unions in the UK, the National Union of Mine Workers. These were coal miners. These are the people responsible for keeping the lights on in the UK. Margaret Thatcher wanted to privatize them, and the union fought hard. It was a year-long bitter strike that ultimately ended in failure. All this was going on while the clash was trying to recapture that old glory. The events of this strike 
bled into the recording of the music. You can hear Strummer's words in songs like This Is England or North and South, just trying to relay the message of what was happening. It's heartbreaking. And when I finished this book, I had such a new appreciation for this era of the band. But I also learned a lot more about what was going on at the time, which I didn't quite know. Some of the things I did never, some of the things I'd never even heard about. So I want to welcome Mark Anderson to Four Songs. Now, Mark isn't just an author of this book. He's also written a book about Washington, D.C.'s punk rock history. He's also founded a punk rock collective called Positive Force D.C. This interview is emotional at times, and it's pretty intense. But Mark honors the band's history and dedication to changing the world. Please welcome Mark Anderson to Four Songs. Hey, Mark. How you doing? I am doing as well as can be expected in the, uh, the summer now leading into the autumn of incipient fascism in America. And the battle, the battle against it. Um, yeah, this is uh, one of the most crazy, scary, um, but uh, also still possibility-filled moments uh, in American history, certainly in my lifetime in American history. But and we we're talking about the appropriate band to be discussing in these times, The Clash. And well, we're going to be talking today about a book that Mark Anderson co-wrote with Ralph Habutsky called We Are the Clash. It's about the time between, I guess is a good way to put it, after Joe Strummer and Paul Simonon and the Clash manager Bernie Rhodes uh, kicked out Mick Jones and then ventured on with two new guitarists and a new drummer. And it's a fascinating time in the band's history because no one really knows a lot about it. So I'm pleased to come across this great, fantastic book called We Are the Clash and Mark has been kind enough to join me today. So again, Mark, just one question I've been asking everyone so far as we are in this pandemic, and have you, this is not really a musical question, but how, how have you guys been doing, and have you been writing any other, any other projects? Well, as it happens, my, my, uh, the center of my life these days is my work with We Are Family, and We Are Family is an outreach and advocacy organization that serves low-income seniors in inner-city Washington, D.C., the vast majority of whom, like 90 seven percent are non-white so it's a population that's been dramatically hit by the covid crisis and so it's been a, a extremely intense period but it's also been beautiful in in certain ways um because there's a lot of time with my kids and my wife lots to be grateful for thanks for asking i was talking earlier about what drew me to your book into this era of the band and of the clash and i got into music because of the clash i kind of them a little backwards i was a young i was probably 12 years old when i picked up cut the crap which is has been expunged by a lot of the official clash biographies <laughs> and and you two are indeed yeah and but you detail it in your book with such passion it, it's really you know I, I felt like when you peel back the layers there's some intense terrific music in there and so one thing I was just curious about is what drew you to this era of the band? Well, my life experience, uh, you know, just straight up. I got into punk as crazy as it might sound in 1975 in one of the most remote parts of the state of Montana, Sheridan County. And I remember very clearly the first time I ever saw a picture of The Clash. It was in kind of a trashy photo zine magazine 
that Lisa Robinson uh, was the kind of the visionary behind called Rock Scene. And it was it was a pretty silly magazine in, in many ways, but it was a lot of fun. And it, it happened to focus a lot in the New York scene. And when they published a few pictures of The Clash, and in particular, there's this amazing picture of the band performing White Riot for presumably one of the first times they did. You know, the, the way the band looked, the, the obvious passion of their performance, there was something brave and extraordinary and, and filled with passion that they were trying to do. They quickly became, if not my favorite band, certainly one of the most favorite bands in my late teens, early 20s. And a band that I particularly looked towards as time passed because they were a band that was very serious about trying to grow, to not stay in the same place but to stay true to their ideals, while also slowly but surely making it up the charts. Sort of a tension at the heart of the band, you know, are they primarily about revolution or are they primarily about commercial success? And the answer is they're about both at the same time, which is hard to do, but also fascinating to see uh, artists who are truly committed to both. Whether they succeed or not, you can argue, but clearly The Clash become extremely commercially successful. And it is at precisely at that moment that The Clash has broken through and become one of the most popular bands in the world. And there is clearly great discomfort within certain parts of the band, particularly Joe Strummer, but I think also Paul Simonon, about this. Um, is this good? Are, are we losing ourselves? Um, and the decision is made to, well, first kick out Topper Hedden because of his heroin addiction and then kick out Mick Jones about a year later, a little over a year later, because he, from their point of view, was becoming a rock star, like betraying the ethos of The Clash. And so they decided they were going to reinvent The Clash and, and purify it. They were questioning in fundamental ways what success was really about. And they were trying to get back to their punk rock roots and to that raw political protest that had animated them at the outset. This spoke to me very powerfully. When I read about, I read the interviews and then heard some bootleg uh, tapes, it made me reflect on my life and where I was at. And of course, what happens is that you forever we're waiting for this record to come out that's supposed to be the return to the raw punk glory uh, of the early clash there's so much hope and possibility that seems to be there and then the record comes out and the record cut the crap left a lot of people scratching their heads because it was just simply not what we were expecting it was not what Joe Strummer had been talking about over and over and over again. And as we're trying to absorb this kind of shot from left field, the band's over. Uh, and you're left wondering by early 1986, what happened? You know, for me, both that sense of mystery always lingered and also that extraordinary inspiration from that time. This era of the band is equally important to me in my life as that original one from 
76, 77, 78. So what happened about 2013 or so is that I finally got tired of this period being written out of existence and really, really curious to dig in deep, to interview as many of the people involved and try to tell the real story, the full story of that period and placing it in its context because it makes very little sense outside of its context, both the context of the internal struggle within the band and the broader political context. In the process of starting the research, I discovered that, huh, someone else might already be working on this book. Um, And it turned out that this was a person, Ralph Hybutsky, who was kind of a a legend in underground clash circles, as like the the guy who really knew the clash. And so we just connected over, you know, the telephone and the internet and talked about this. And his book was pretty much stalled. It was not clear if it was ever going to come to fruition. Little pieces were done, but the overall, uh, he had so much great raw material, but the overall thing was not there. And we decided to work together. And it was a tremendously fortuitous uh, meeting because I think the book that we were able to make together uh, is so much better than the books we could have made apart. And hopefully does some degree of justice to what is an extraordinary story that I think has relevance not simply to people who love The Clash, but also to anybody who cares about our world. We try to give a social history in some sense, a political history of the 1980s, while also tying what happens then to what's happening now. And reading through it, what or maybe doing on your research, what did anything surprise you? I mean, that you didn't expect when you were doing. I mean, you knew sort of what was what happened just based on what had been written previously. But was there one or two things that you found out that just really like, wow, I did not know that, or that I did not expect that? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that uh, kind of shocked me and kind of broke my heart, but also in the end. I think gave me a deeper appreciation for Joe Strummer is just how much went wrong for him at that time. Because if you go back and you look at what's going on, my God, the, the weight of the world almost literally was on his shoulders. He was felt primarily responsible, whether he was actually primarily responsible or not, you know, it's another question for firing not only Topper Hedden, who then further descended into drug addiction and is lucky to be alive today, but also, uh, you know, the firing of Mick Jones, which he came to feel was such a profound betrayal of, uh, of, a, of a dear friend. And then the fact that he loses his father and then in fairly quick succession his mother at the same time as he's becoming a father for the first time, and then the second time he's, you know, his kids are coming. And then he is placed into a position of being the central creative person, not just for the words, but for the music of this new version of the band. And of course, the vision of this, this new version of the band is extraordinarily ambitious in, in itself. And then finally, I think an appreciation for him as what he always claimed to be and never claimed to be more than as a human being mm-hmm. who had really good intentions and did so many great things, but also 
fell short of, of his ideals so profoundly at different points. And again, that's something I can relate to in my own life. And most of us can, I think. So I think in that sense, Ed, that was a profound experience for me. And, and, and you know, ultimately, tremendously healing. And again, that's the punk idea, right? You know, nobody's the big star. We're all in this together. We're all the same. You know, some of us might be a little younger, earlier on the journey. Some of us might be older. But whatever, we're fundamentally the same. So if you see something that a punk does that you think is amazing, the appropriate punk thing is to believe that you can do it too and to go try. And for those of you who achieve these amazing things, like Joe Strummer did in so many ways, the appropriate thing is to understand you're no better than the other folks. You are them. Yeah, and I really, I mean, your book just is so exquisite and the detail and just the passion is evident in your writing of it. I'm just fascinated with the evolution of songs and what your book made me do, like I said, is go back to that album and listen again and try to kind of strip out some of the overproduction, I think, that Bernie Rhodes put in there and listen to the words again and listen to how he was singing it and the music. And I mean, it's, it's really good. <laughs> oh, it is. I mean, that's, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's like lightning striking again, I feel like. You can argue about Cut the Crap. There's so much I could talk about, you know, what I like and don't like about Cut the Crap. But what I can tell you is that version of the band wrote some of the best songs The Clash ever did. They're, they're up there with, with the very best. And one thing you can, I can say a lot about Bernard Rhodes, a lot has been said about his production on Cut the Crap. But, you know, I think one place where you just cannot fault him is This Is England. Because This Is England is a good song all the way from the original demo from November of 83 through the live versions you hear. And it's evolving in the live versions over the course of those two years. But the, uh, the studio version, I, I think John Savage is right. It is the last great British punk song. At least punk is understood in that original era. Um, sadly, its magic is largely about utter devastating defeat because it, it comes out at a moment which is probably the lowest point for the British left in, in the 20th century, certainly. And it captures a moment which in its way is as devastating as any political moment that I can uh, recall. Yeah, I mean, I think the second verse is pretty telling, though. It talks about you know, time on his hands, freezing in his clothes. He won't go for the carrot. They beat him by the pole. I think that's heartbreaking right there. I mean, and, and you can go through the lines of the song and, you know, there's all sorts of things showing up there. You know, the, the brutality of the police, the racism in the society, the, the way that kind of this tabloid newspaper culture had gotten a hold of them, the Falklands, this 
you know, this clinging to the British Empire, obviously the devastation of the industrial economy. And then finally, you know, and I think it's like heart crushing the last verse. British boots go kick him. Bengali in the head, obviously, packy bashing. Policeman ain't watching. A newspaper's being read. Who dares to protest enough to react like a flame? Out come the batons, you know, the, the, the nightsticks, the truncheons, the clubs of the police. And the British warn themselves, this is England. I mean, it's so extraordinary, the words, and such a powerful summation of the feeling of people like The Clash and anyone who was believing in a, in a truly fair and just, equitable United Kingdom after the destruction, the decimation of the, the, the strongest mining, the strongest union in the UK, maybe the strongest union anywhere in the world ever. The British Miners Union, the National Union of Mine Workers, smashed in that titanic year-long strike. Because the, you know, the point is, it's like this fatalism. The British warn themselves, this is England. We will never win. That's what they're saying. Who dares to protest? Why protest? It's pointless. That's the, the point. And now, of course, the song is not saying it's pointless. The song is saying, my God, we tried and we got smashed, but it mattered. It mattered so much. Yeah, man. Then it continues. I mean, we could talk about a whole, I mean, this whole album, but, you know, Ready for War. And, and that's one that talked about evolving. And initially it was, are you ready for war? Ready for war. And then it became, are you ready? And but, but, <laughs> Although yeah. that's Bernard Rose. I think one of the, the great challenges for a political artist, a political musician, songwriter, is how do you do a song that can move people on a visceral level while also expanding their consciousness and imparting some sense of possibility or inspiration to activate them. Because you can write songs that are full of meaning, 
but they just don't move people. You know, they're full of meaning for you. Right. Uh, and so, and so what Stromer set out to do here, I think is kind of amazing. He's trying to write a song that is very danceable and very catchy while also kind of putting it in your face. Are you ready for war? Because that's what's about to happen, you know? And he, he was very clear in some of the interviews I saw that he l tried to leaven the song with humor. If you look at the song, there's some really poetic lines like, hell, hell is ringing on a red, red phone, like clearly like the phone calling to, you know, tell the people to send the missiles to, you know, ignite nuclear holocaust. And then they're kind of funny lines about like comparing the the uh, competition between the, the U.S. and then the then Soviet Union, like a drinking contest. Like what is it, Ryan the Rocks or vodka? You know, you know, smashed on the bar. Strummer knew that he had to strike a balance. You do it right, you can create a call to action for the entire world that gets heard over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I would say that even though the lyrics to Are You Ready for War are sometimes nursery, nursery rhyme simple, it's very effective. And I think that's such a big difference between Joe Stormer and The Clash and some of the other political bands. And Mark, I really appreciate your time. And I do want to make, want to ask about another song, which I think is, it's it seems to me more of a, a, it's not an attack on music itself, but Movers and Shakers, which is, I feel like it's kind of an analogy for this version of the band. And especially the, the busking tour. And of course there always is, everything is political with, in a lot of cases with Joe Stormer, but what, what are your, thoughts about movers and shakers it's the first song that i really like from this album yeah I, as a lyric it's one of the most extraordinary lyrics the the strummer ever did and it does a, a wonderful job of tying together some crucial themes for him at the time people have criticized the opening lines you know boy the boy stood in the burning slum better times had to come again context strummer's talking about the South Bronx, the birthplace of hip hop. That literally was on fire. It was like a war had happened there. When he's talking about that, this is not hyperbole. This is actual poetic representation of reality. The period he's talking about is really mid seventies, although the, you know, it stretched, the, the decimation of the South Bronx stretches across you know, the seventies into the eighties. You know, landlords are burning down their own buildings to get the insurance money because, you know, it's more lucrative for them than. So it's it's not a joke, and it's not an exaggeration. 
It is the South Bronx, which on one hand is like hell on earth during that period, and on the other hand is the birthplace for one of the more extraordinary types of music ever to rise out of the American experiment, which is hip hop music. And then in the next verse, he's talking about folks on the street who are just trying to make a cent here or there, you know, yeah. you know, sitting at the intersections, you know, wiping off the, the windshields, cleaning off the, the car uh, glass and, and mirrors and so forth, and, you know, getting whatever is tossed towards them. very powerful strummers bringing us into the struggle of these people in Reagan's America to survive. And, you know, some people say, well, you didn't, you, we don't want to romanticize that because it's like, we want revolution, right? We don't want people begging on the street corner or, or like you being like a shoe shine boy, glorified shoe shine boy on the corner, people's fancy cars. Fair enough. But I think Strummer would say, you know, there ain't no revolution unless you get to tomorrow. You know, people got to survive before you can have this big thing, you know, that transforms everything. You got to get to the transformation or it doesn't mean anything. You know, there's this kind of bridge in the song, which is a profound one. And it spoke to me because I struggle. I, I am a very emotional person. You may have gotten this idea. And so one of the emotions I feel is crushing depression. You know, like everything is black. And Strummer was the same way. <laughs> and so it's like he turns the song to himself in that bridge and says, you know, you know when I see you down, I say, that ain't no way, that ain't no way through. The chorus of the song, of course, is what? Movers and shakers, come on. You got what you, it takes to make it, you know? Movers and shakers, come on, even if you have to fake it, which brings you beautifully to the last verse, which is about what? It's really about the creation of punk rock music. Make a drum out of a garbage can. Allow your tongue to be a man. Now, it's a sexist way of saying things, but basically what it's saying is like, Stand up for something, speak out, be somebody. 
and you got it made in this cold concrete. For anybody who thinks that this period of the clash is lacking in substance, they're clearly not listening to this song. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time tonight, Mark. And if you do have time, can we talk about North and South? Is Absolutely. All right. Well, I've got time, so. Yeah. Um, so, so this is what, what I like about this. Well, to me, what stands out about this one, I and mean, we'll get to the lyrics, but this is one of the only songs that someone other than Joe or Mick or Paul or even Topper sings in them, but Nick Shepard is they sing this one together. How much did Nick was his involvement with this song? Did he help shape it at all? Because you did talk about how the band themselves would rehearse for hour long end without Joe or Bernie. But um Yeah. Um to the extent that I know, um this is a Joe Strummer song. It's okay. all Joe Strummer. Art is rarely simply one person's creation. In this case, I can only imagine that Strummer being, you know, he's an extraordinary artist, but he is a somewhat rudimentary musician. He is not terribly trained in music. He's got great instincts. He's got limited skills to, to, to realize his vision. So I, as, as I understand it, it was largely brought to the, the, uh, the band written but of course they will shape it in this song this is really strummer writing a song that's inspired by the suffering of not just the miners but their families during this year-long strike because if you can imagine how it would feel to have almost no money for a year you're a coal miner your whole life you've been digging coal out in you're providing heat and light for the whole country. You can't even afford to buy coal for your own family. I mean, there were kids from coal mining families, several of them died scrounging through these big slag heaps, trying to find uh, you know, a few bits of coal that could be used by their families because they were so destitute during this strike, this titanic, majestic and heart crushing strike and so where were the miners families eating they were eating at soup kitchens and that's part of what's in this song i don't want a plastic knife yeah it's it's from a soup kitchen that's what they're saying about a man and a woman trying to raise their kids and 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 give them something to eat
in the United Kingdom, Northern England is the relatively impoverished part, especially once the industry starts crashing to a halt. In the South, you know, where the financial industry, London and the environs are the the thriving ones, particularly during that period uh, of, of Thatcher's reign. The, the jobs are disappearing from the North. And of course, as she opens the floodgates of capitalist speculation, the, you know, the, the city, the heart, the, the Wall Street of England, uh, of, of Great Britain is exploding. They're having a great time, just kind of like right now. Stock market, whoa, through the roof, whoopee. But there's so many millions unemployed. People, so many people in lines to get into the food banks. So there's two different economies. And so that's what he's talking about. He's saying, look, at, we've got to look as British people. We've got to look at what's happening between the South and the North. We're one. But some people are just being not only left behind, they're being thrown on the scrap heap. And so that's where you get lines like, have you no use? for eight million hands or the power of youth. Unemployment is heading towards 4 million at this point, which was astronomical for the United Kingdom at that time. And of course, each person presumably has two hands. There you have it, 8 million hands just sitting idle. And, and so the first part of the song is really talking about the, uh, you know, it's very personal about this family and what it's facing but it's bringing these big issues of unemployment and, and suffering. They don't talk about the minor strike, but that is clearly where he's getting his inspiration. It's his attempt to create something that will speak to that moment, to that reality. The final verse, um, which is for me, one of the most resonant clashed lyrics and, and the, probably the perfect place for us to, you know, kind of bring this conversation around to a conclusion. And, and the lyrics are, and so we say, we ain't digging no grave. We're digging a foundation for a future to be made. I, now I know the time can march with its charging feet. Now I know words are only cheap. digging a grave. We are building a foundation. We're digging a foundation for a world worthy of humanity with real liberty and justice for all. That's what they're saying. 
And that's really, to me, the clash. That's this period of the band. Yes, they fail. Yes, it fell apart. The miners were defeated. The, the, the thing crumbled, cut the crap, only scratched the surface of what was possible with this version of the band. But you know what? The story, their struggle, still means so much. It has so much to give to us right now. We have to grab it. We have to put it to use. We cannot ultimately be defeated unless we give up. I want to thank you so much, Mark, for your time tonight. Give me a lot of your time. And also, I want to thank you for writing this book because I said it just really gave me such a greater appreciation for this era of the band and the band itself. So thank you. Oh, thank, thank you, you for being everything. interested in talking to me, as you can tell. This stuff matters to me. Yeah. Well, and I love to talk about it. It's a fascinating story beyond all the politics. It's, it's, a, it's a profound human story yeah. and uh, has so much meaning for, for all of us, whatever our politics are. I want to thank Mark Anderson for joining me for this episode of Four Songs. Stay tuned. we got a lot coming. <laughs>